Hi, I'm Sigmasaur, the founder and CEO of The Juggernaut, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hi, everyone. On this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, we welcome back the founder and CEO of The Juggernaut, Snigdha Sur. Stay with us. So I've said it before and I'll say it again. We as global Indians and global South Asians have a messy and equally beautiful existence. And speaking of beautiful, thanks again for listening to the podcast and sharing it with your family and friends. If you're enjoying these, by the way, I hope you can share a kind review or rating and follow us on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. So this beautiful existence, right? There's nuance and context to it all. And while there's no single lens, obviously, there are definitely some specific things to ponder in the diaspora. We celebrate and cling to our history and heritage and also debate it and challenge it voraciously. We fixate a lot on Hindi movies. We have highs and lows. We love cricket and music and politics and tech. We crave hing on our foods and we pack our leftovers in empty sour cream plastic dabas. Now to chronicle all of the culture and the ongoing journey of the South Asian diaspora through smart journalism is no easy task. So it was really nice to catch up with Snigdha Sur, the founder and CEO of The Juggernaut, and welcome her back to the podcast for another chat. Snigdha was born in India, grew up in the Bronx and in Queens, went to Harvard and Yale, and has worked and lived in both Mumbai and New York. She started The Juggernaut as an emailed newsletter of South Asian-focused articles, and with her team has grown and nurtured it into a thriving digital publication with a great curation of original reported news and stories. The range certainly fits my own appetite, from why India's time zone is a half hour off others, to reclaiming the Tiffin, to Rishi Sunak, and to Natu Natu going wrong at the Oscars. We caught up recently for a broad conversation about the marketplace, about our diversity, and even about empire building, but I started by asking her what she's been most surprised by when it comes to storytelling in our community. I think some of the interesting surprises, and I think we talked about some of this even in our last conversation, is that when it comes to South Asian storytelling, you know, there's a, not a mistake, but there's a tendency we all have as South Asians, which is, oh, we're South Asian, so we know everything about this, right? And I think that that's been a very interesting surprise because when you go on to the Juggernaut's Instagram, there is heated commentary happening in the comment section. Like yes. we're not even in it because we're like, we cannot even get in here because people have strong thoughts about almost every single topic that we're covering, whether it comes to research and data on, you know, South Asian predisposition to diabetes or whether it comes to Deepika Padukone starting a new business venture, everyone who is yeah. South Asian has opinions. And I think that that's been both a surprise and a joy, I guess. Like this is always a hypothesis you and I have, which is, you know, South Asians are really obsessed with internet culture and really vocal and that has proven out. And so that's been very interesting. I think what have been surprises, aha moments and delights for me is mm -hmm. finding out when people like, I just found out recently at a party that Blake Lively follows us. I found out that, you know, Gurren Johar follows us and Anandya Pandey follows us, Lily Singh follows yeah. us. And it's one of those moments where, you know, Deepika Padukone's team reached out to us when, when they were launching 82 East and they're like, hey, you were one of the few people that we thought deserved a 30 minute interview with her. Are you down? And I said, of course I'm down and I'm going to ask some tough questions. And they said, yeah. yeah, we're prepared. And I was like, great. Um, 
And I think a lot of people don't realize that we are, we are not paid for editorial content. So we do right. have an ad business, which we am happy to talk about where people sponsor a newsletter, helps us be more sustainable for our audience. But whenever we write um, articles, like those are not sponsored at all. And so yeah. when people are like, oh my God, you're just like, the arm of Karen Johar, Deepika Padukone. I was like, I assure you, if you read the article, there's plenty of tough questions in there. And so I would say those are my kind of two or three observations. One, like constantly surprised by our audience. They're so delightful and so obsessed and so interested and lots of opinions. And second, I would say is just been seeing people engage and people knowing about us from different walks of life that, you know, when, when we started this, you know, I had always suspected that we would be that pulse of South Asian news you need to know about, but I, I didn't envision it to get there in a way sooner than I expected, but also hopefully we'll keep going, you know, we'll keep expanding. Well, and, and with a lot of breath to that, right? I mean, has, has the breath part of it been a surprise as well that like, you know, now that the, the current you know, standing or the current prominence of the juggernaut within kind of the community and, and the pulse on the internet. It seems like the those who are are also seeking out that vehicle, that amplifier, that that sort of tooting horn, um, but in a, in a very thoughtful and, and with a journalistic spin uh, are reaching out to you and, and saying, hey, look, this is the platform that we want to really sort of share our voice on. But and, and you have that pushback, that ability to ask tough questions and make sure that that's there. Has that been sort of a surprise as to how broad the reach has been? I think, yes. I mean, you know, one of the fun facts I like to share is that when it comes to our paying subscribers, not talking about Instagram for a second, yeah. um, 10% of our paying subscribers, and we talked about this last time, or maybe we didn't, but I want to underline it, are not South Asian. And yeah. that was always the intention, which is some, several of our subscribers are partners of South Asians. They're married to them, or they're dating them, or they've lived in India on a Fulbright, or, you know, they've lived in Bangladesh on a Fulbright like South Asian culture is part of our everyday life, whether we every, yeah. almost every single thing we touch, whether I, I'm not trying to be one of those uncles, but like, you know, whether it's the Paisley print on your, on your like shirt or whether it's the chai you're drinking, like there's been so many aspects of South Asian culture that have been part of our lives, but we just haven't really taken the time to honor, celebrate, challenge those aspects. So yeah. I think that the ubiquity is not the surprise. The breadth of the audience or following is not the surprise. What I, think has been the surprise more to me is that a lot more people get what we're doing than I initially thought. Because mm. when I first had this proposal and I would go to investors, they thought I was crazy. They said, first of all, who are South Asians? And I was like, no, we're this audience. And then second, I was like, look, I think they're ready. I think they're ready, not just for memes, not just yeah. for fluff content. I think they're ready for like the challenging stuff where I kind of put something in front of them or our team put something in front of them and we're challenging these people. We're challenging our community to like push beyond the usual narratives. And a lot of people dismissed it. They're like, yeah. no, I think, I think we're going to only do India abroad, which is usually like congratulatory pieces. It's all about celebration. I'm right. like, I don't think, I think we've moved past that. So I think the audience has surprised me. I'm glad that they are mature for that and not everybody is, but a lot yeah. of people are, and a lot of people are ready for that. I mean, do you think that's, that's also evolving? Do you think that, why do you think that there has been such a embrace perhaps of being challenged, you know, for the audience themselves and, and for those who are maybe even brand new to the juggernaut, where do you think that that motivation comes from to embrace some of those challenges, embrace some of those questions being asked? I think so much of life and so much of human deep behavior is driven by insecurity, right? Mm. Whenever you're insecure, you kind of see people kind of uh, uh, like project their insecurities on other people. 
So I sure. kind of think about like our parents' generation or the generation before many of the earliest immigrants to America uh, post the Heart Seller Act, many of them were just trying to survive and thrive and assimilate, right? Sorry, survive and assimilate, basically. And so they felt deeply insecure about their cultures and traditions. So there was no even chance of questioning or challenging things, right? It was just like, yeah. hey, we just want to survive here. We just want to like right. protect our little world. Yes. Um, and I think this generation, such a gift, right? When I look at Gen Z, when I look at millennials, like it's a gift where we're like, actually our parents worked hard or went through this. And now we're at the point where we can be multiple professions. We are at the point, you know, I'd like to think that's true. We're at the point where we can kind of question some of these norms that have happened. We're at the point where South Asians across TikTok are creating their own interpretations of traditions, their own kind of challenges of traditions and calling out those kind of contradictions. I'll give you an example, right? Recently we yeah. uh, did a news post on American Girl just announced its first South Asian Gavi. girl of the year. Yeah. Gavi. Yeah. And I loved seeing the range of expressions and emotions. One was like, finally, representation. Other people were like, why is this light-skinned doll our representation? Right. And I will yeah. assure you, 30 years ago, many South Asians were too scared and too insecure to call out, why is this light-skinned girl our doll? Yeah. Whereas like now, I think people feel comfortable having those range of emotions from, and by the way, all emotions can be true simultaneously, right? I really loved yeah. everything, everywhere, all at once. Like, we are living in this multiverse where you could feel, yes, representation, and you can also feel, wait, why is this doll light-skinned? Why does, why does this doll have a, like, a Brahmin last name? Why is this right. doll technically a practicing Hindu? Like, why are we doing all of these additional things that we're very confused about as a community? Like, who talked to us? Did they yeah. talk to us? Yes, they did. But also, like, did they have multiple focus groups? Unclear. So I think that that's, that's like, the beauty of what I'm seeing that I, I think yeah. is driven by us feeling like, Many of us, more of us are thriving. We have half a trillion dollars of spending power. Many of us feel that it's time to challenge. And many many of us feel more secure because South Asian culture is cool again, I guess. You know, it, it's funny you say that because I think that like in many ways, those questions and those misgivings or, or those even thoughts about like, well, wait, why is this happening? How is this happening? Who was consulted? Why is only one sector being represented? Light skin, dark skin, et cetera, et cetera. These questions probably were all being asked, but they definitely weren't being asked with the same kind of amplification or the same kind of platform, you know, in the pre-internet era, for sure. I, I wonder as this all evolves, and as you say that like it's becoming much, much more ubiquitous and much, much more breadth of the questioning and the diversity and the nuances even of the community, is it getting easier to tell or share South Asian American stories, or is it in fact getting harder because of that growing complexity and those questions? And like you said, the diversity of responses and reactions that, that you'll have to things like this. I mean, I think that's the beauty and the challenge of any business, hopefully. Yeah. Like I, I would hate to do something that felt easy and it seems like you're not in that business either of, hey, you're constantly right. going after guests that challenge your opinions and push your yeah. storytelling. So I would say that I think in so many ways, you're right. It does make things so much harder, but guess what? I view the juggernaut as, you know, uh, I view it like, you know, a lifting tide like raises all boats. Yeah. The more shows there are on Netflix, there are more um, discussion topics there are, the more Congress people there are of South Asian descent. Even though Rishi Sunak is a controversial figure in the community, the fact that he is the UK prime minister, let's just, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, like what? Like yeah. when did that happen? And so I think that like all of those things lead to so much texture and conversation that the juggernaut needs to report on, that the juggernaut needs to amplify and talk about. I'm even thinking about the World Cup there was so much discussion right. about the thousands of South Asian migrant worker deaths, thousands of them. Yeah. But yeah. guess what? Qatar kind of got away with it. 
FIFA got away with it. Such a huge contrast of you have the migrant worker story and then you have Bibika presenting the trophy. And it's like, you can't get much more of a balance of contrast right there in that same you sort can't. of frame. You can't. And I think that that's that's the beauty of like, okay, how do you cover this? And it's like yeah. interesting to like, interesting to bring all of those things out. So does that does that bring a lot of pride for you? I mean, like this is a vision that you had many years ago and, and now having those contrasts and the kind of, in some ways, the great problem to have in, in trying to say, hey, we've got so many different types of angles to the same story. Oof, I, I don't know if pride is the right word. I would say one of my one of my closest mentors now, and I met him over Twitter, is Andy Weissman. He's a partner at Union Square Ventures, one of the most humble and successful venture capital firms, East Coast firm, and so amazing. Everybody there is so kind. And I talked to him, I talked to him a lot about these kind of existential questions we have. Yeah. And just to give some context, this firm has backed the likes of early stage Tumblr, early stage Twitter, you know, really, really early social media networks. And he himself was on like at Helmed Betaworks, which produced Giphy and all these other things. So he knows the creative side and the business side. Sure. And he said, Snigda, you have a vision that's amazingly visionary and probably right, if not 100%, right? People are catching up. People have not caught up. Yeah. So that, that's the three-part story of the juggernaut, I would say. Sure. I think from the outside, it might look really easy. I sometimes write about this, where it, from the outside, it looks so easy. And you know this, you're running a podcast show. There's so many little things happening behind the scenes from yeah, after yeah. this. People see sometimes the end product and think, oh my God, that must've been so easy. People think I'm South Asian. I could interview anybody. It's going to be so easy. Like right. I can do what Abhi is doing. Yeah. I can do what the juggernaut is doing. And to this day, I will tell you, like, it's still really hard for us to raise fundraising. Sometimes it's hard sure. for us to convince certain customers, like, hey, that's $72 a year. That's going to fund our journalists. Like, if there's right. somebody on the other side who needs to write these articles to make sure that we quench our collective thirst for information, yeah. news, and, and entertainment. And so I think that pride is, pride is definitely not the right word. I would say that it feels, I would say, probably, this is probably the worst analogy, but it feels like what those folks who went west felt like back sure. in the day in America, where yeah. it's like, hey, we're like leading this trail, but everyone thinks we're nuts. And yeah. we have so much exhaustion and so few little food and so few resources at our disposal. But one day, this Wild West will become California and will become like the yeah. best place on earth to, you know, create companies and have amazing redwood forests and have universities, but that hasn't come to fruition yet. So I would say that's how it feels sometimes for me. <laughs> No, and, and I mean, you know, does it make it hard? You use the word sort of like people have to catch up. Does it make it hard for you to think like, you know, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm caught up. I have to, you know, that I'm personally like, you know, in the same lane as where the rest of the questions are, where the pace and the pulse are. And at the same time, does it make it hard for you to even sort of celebrate? Because in that same, I'm not sure I love that analogy, but in that same analogy of conquering the West, so to speak, it meant that the people coming afterwards are the ones who are really going to be bearing the, the fruit of what those actions are. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely tough. Like, I think yeah. most founders don't talk enough about how, like, the highs are really high, the lows are really low. Like, there were days last year where, I don't know, Netflix invited me to a very intimate gathering and I got to meet my heroes, like from Tan Franz to Mindy Kaling to Raymond Black to um, Tia Sarchar of The Good Place. And I was like, how am I in the room with also Lily Singh with all these people who have whatever your feelings about them personally, they have been trailblazers and they've been yeah. exceptional in their field. Right. And I was like, how am I in the same room as these people? Like sure. what happened here? 
And so I think there are those days that feel really high. And then there's those days that feel really low to your point, which is like, am I doing the right thing? Should I have right. just stayed at my job at McKinsey and like made a lot of money and then like funded the person who was going to do the juggernaut? Right. Like, right. what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that in those days, like the best thing I can think about is, are you satisfied with the rate of change? So even though you feel like you're at the forefront and people haven't caught up, if you need this rate of change to happen faster and nothing else is delivering it for you, mm. you just have to kind of accept it and go for it because there will be those days that you're, you're going to be excited you're on that rocket ship. Like when I work sure. with my team every day, there's a couple of things. We laugh every day and the yeah. conversations we're having on my team, like my teammates often say, when I was in college, when I was early in my career, I never envisioned I could bring my whole self to work where we're talking about Deepika and Bashar Amrang, but we're also talking about the awesomeness of Madhur Joffrey. We're talking about our love for Fawad Khan. This is all happening in one day, by the way. Yeah. And I don't think I could have envisioned that early in my career that I was creating a company where people could just have that conversation at any time. Sure. Yeah. So, which makes it lovely, right? And I mean, you know, you mentioned the idea of 10% of the subscribership being non-South Asian and or maybe those who have South Asian ties or those who are just South Asian enthusiasts, et cetera. You, you know, what have you discovered about the marketplace as as the juggernaut has has evolved for this brand of storytelling, who's consuming for that matter, and for that matter, who's not consuming this? Yeah, I think that for, I'll start with who's not consuming. And I always yeah. love meeting the people who are not consuming because I'm right. like, you are a potential customer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. One of the favorite tricks that venture capitalists love to play on you, if you're if they're not South Asian, is they love calling up one South Asian friend, asking them if they've heard of the juggernaut and based on their reaction, dictating their entire investment strategy on you, which right. is the worst. If you face this kind of a discrimination in venture capital as you're raising as a founder, please DM me on Twitter. I'm happy to talk to you about this. It happens right. to me all the time. One of my favorites was this one analyst. She's like, yeah, my parents have never heard about you. And I was like, where do your parents live? She was like, oh, India. I was like, do they have an iPhone? Because we were only on an iPhone app at that point. She's yeah. like, no. And I'm like, okay, so you're telling me that Apple is the worst company in the world because your parents don't have an iPhone. Right? right. That's what you're telling me. And she did not have a response to that because like, yeah. how are one's parents the stand in for any kind of investment thesis? You need to actually talk to multiple people and multiple customers. Sure. So I would say what I found when I find out about these people who haven't subscribed to us and who might be of South Asian descent, those people first, what I found is they have a lot of misconceptions about us. Or right. so, for example, one of them was like, oh, like I used to do India abroad. Like, why are you guys charging me more than India abroad? And you don't have a physical paper. Like, that's like, yeah. I was like, what? Like, you realize we're all gone digital. Right. Um, I've also heard the news like, oh, like I subscribe to New York Magazine. That's only $1 for five weeks. Like, I would never subscribe to you guys. And I'm like, if you think we're like New York Magazine, you have another thing coming. <laughs> like, that's that right. is not. Perhaps a perceptual mismatch there. Yeah. And perhaps I don't even want you as a customer if you're yeah. the you're willing to pay for New York Magazine, but you're not willing to pay for, let's say, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, right? Or yeah. The Economist. So I would say that what I learned from talking to customers, and that's still, by the way, I respect these people. I'm not trying to make fun of these people. Sure, these sure. are people that I need to eventually convert. Yeah. These are folks that who either for some reason or the other have a misconception about who we are and the quality of our writing. So our goal is then how do we overcome that. They sometimes have a misconception of our pricing. Like our pricing is not random. It's there yeah. because we want to be able to be sustainable and not die like every other publication. Um, third is they sometimes have a misconception of, you know, what they're actually supporting. Like, yeah. like if all of our subscribers went away tomorrow and they're like, we're not going to support this because I care more about my $10 latte than I care more about my $6 a month for the juggernaut. 
you're going to make sure you're going to actually go back, revert back to that world where like, maybe you get an occasional article in the New York times. Maybe you get an occasional article in NBC, Asian America. Maybe you get a Spotify Mm -hmm. playlist that says starring Deepika Padukone that has a song with Priyanka Chopra in it, because that's what people do right now. So I think that I'm very curious about those people. And I'm always like, please give me a chance. Like if you even give me a free (laughs) trial, I will like change you. And if not, like, let me know how I can make it better. I always ask that, like, how can we make this better for you? Yeah. For the folks who do subscribe and many of whom are not South Asian, what I found is that they, to your point, they're such South Asian enthusiasts. Like one of my subscribers, he was like, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I went to Gerba. He's white, by the way. He's like, I grew up with doing Gerba. And like, I don't have a, like an avenue to keep up with South Asian news that makes me feel like I'm an insider. So here I am. And sometimes it's like, it is a lot of South Asians who are like, I need to support this because even if I don't read this every day, if I don't put my money where my mouth is, we're not going to have this for our community. Have you seen that there's any, I mean, there. I think that I know the answer to this, but is there a clear generational set of lines that, that are distinguished when it comes to the appetite for the juggernaut or for stories like this? Oh, this is my favorite answer. And you know this probably. I love that for the juggernaut, we have converted people from as young as 18 to 65 plus, according to our yeah. analytics. And I sometimes call it the buy one, get one free approach, where if we get a kid, sometimes we get their parent too. My right. favorite is when the kid and the parents don't know they're both subscribed, which is hilarious. I once got an angry message <laughs> I got an angry message over the holidays from one of my uh, friends who's my age. He goes, Snigda, I didn't even know, but my dad is a lifetime subscriber of the Juggernaut. He also complained to me that you guys aren't charging enough for the lifetime subscription. And I was like, this is great. Like, this is how I get feedback, which is people texting me what their dads are angry about because like (laughs) that I think is incredible, which is there is a generation that's like beta, like we want to support you and you got to charge more because I have more money to give you or like, You know, I love this, like, I love that this exists in this other generation, because think about it, like some of our parents' generation, they, they thought that the culture would die out with them. And instead, yeah. you're seeing this kind of boomerang effect where, like, there was a period where people weren't talking about our culture. And so many kids now yeah. are like, wait, actually, we really want to know about this. It's yeah. like our parents' dreams come true. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Snigdha Sur. Stay tuned. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, my name is Richa Morjani, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with the founder and CEO of The Juggernaut, Snigdha Sur. It's so funny that you mentioned that there's there was sort of like this, this donut, right? When Or even just a valley there where like people came, uh, emigrated to the country. They, they've had this great sort of success in finding community, or even for that matter, they struggled to find community. Not really a whole lot of prominence in the cultural zeitgeist. And then now this renaissance that's happening that we're hopefully writing more and more of, you know, you mentioned the sort of uncle culture that's out there. 
When I talk uh, to either relatives abroad or even folks here, it's not always so obvious that the moniker or the identity of being a South Asian or a South Asian American is always there. So I, I'm just curious for you. I've asked other people this as well, but like when when you ask people in India or people in Bangladesh or people in Bhutan, you know, are they South Asians? They they very rarely will will make that sort of stake to claim. Yet here in the states, we have a lot that's sort of been tagged that way. So. You know, for you personally, I mean, do you consider yourself an Indian American, a South Asian American? Is that identity important, particularly when it comes to the lens of, of the juggernaut? Such a great question. I actually tweeted about this one day because someone asked me why I sometimes said South Asian American versus other instances. And I come from a partition family. So ancestrally, my ancestors are from what is now Bangladesh. And mm. more interestingly, more generationally, Recently, my grandparents were raising their seven kids. They were all born in Burma. And my dad was the only one born in post-partition India. So then I also have a Burma connection where they grew up in Yangon. And then on top of that, like, you know, my relatives today are spread out all over from Calcutta and Delhi to Madras, where none of those cities feel exactly like home. So I always say I feel like a subcontinental kid. Um, I was actually born in South Asia, too. I was born in India. And it's difficult for me to say. So I would say I identify as Indian American, I identify as Bengali American, I identify as South Asian American. Um, the reason that term South Asia came about, and the government has a great article on this, I suggest everyone reads it, is that it actually became a self-described regional co- co- cooperation unit that the subcontinent was describing, which yeah. is if you envision pre-partition and pre-British rule, that region didn't have those geographical lines. There was constant trade between what is now Burma, India, Afghanistan, like many of the Mughal emperors first just chilled in Afghanistan, then would come down to Delhi uh, when it it got too cold in Afghanistan, right? Like there was a lot more interconnectivity in all of these kind of regions, Sri Lanka, Maldives, that I always say like envision what it used to be before the West put random lines here. And I think that's, it's called the SARC, right? The South Asian um, kind of like Association Regional Cooperation. And People sometimes think that South Asian is just a Western construct. It's not. And I think that's what's interesting to me is you have some of these Indians who are like, oh, stop calling South Asian American, call it Indian. And I'm like, actually, no, there's a lot more nuance here than what present day India encompasses. Now, on the reverse side, there's so many times when you think about India pre-1947, that's actually referring to South Asia inadvertently. (laughs) So even though if you say India before 1947, you're actually saying much more (laughs) than India. So for all those folks who get upset about that, I also, you know, think there's (laughs) so much more nuance. So anyway, long answer to a complex question. (laughs) Well, and I mean, it's, it's important. I, in my own, this is my opinion, at least. I mean, I think that like people want to have put monikers and tags upon themselves and they want to actually build communities. So from my standpoint, at least, I think it's important that you identify with who you are and what's important to you and what matters to you and what makes you happy. In that way, whether that means tentacles to historical context of what the Sark, you know, commission was and 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 also or to me being a Marathi American, because that's where it's sort of like the uncles and aunties of my parents' generation, how they fit in with each other. I think that's fine. I do. I, I have to say that, like, there is you're, you're right that there's just seems to be this backlash sometimes that that people have when when they get really really sort of territorial about these kinds of monikers and and maybe you see that from you know the comments that come you know out uh, a lot and and maybe that just is require is is a good exercise in patience and and sort of ignoring them yeah 
Yeah. Um, I do think I, I always wonder about that. It's like, hey, people self-identify. Just leave it alone. Just leave it alone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we talked about this also last time too. And, and I know when it comes to trying to make a proxy for the entire community, it's like there's a risk and a danger for that. But I wanted to sort of see if there's any links here for this one, because I know that you're an absolute Bollywood connoisseur and an enthusiast and, and someone who really, you know, gets into to this for sure and, and has, has written extensively about this. For all of its cultural glow and momentum and the sort of industry part of it, have you found pitfalls or even drawbacks to Bollywood serving as a proxy for everything Indian or South Asian, particularly when it comes to, you know, those people who are just getting introduced or just becoming enthusiastic about South Asian culture and South Asian writing for that matter? Such a good question. I mean, not only am I a Bollywood connoisseur, you probably know this about me, but I actually studied Bollywood in college and wrote my senior thesis on it and worked in the industry. So like, I'm just so deeply embedded in it. And, you know, there's a saying we have in film studies, which is that film is often a mirror to society, right? It can be both a mirror, but it can also be a projection of the future. And I think that if you... actually take a step back and look at a lot of Bollywood movies through time, you do see a story. You see a story getting created that's a reflection of society in large and its values. And so do I think Bollywood is still a great mirror to see what's happening in, in South Asian society? A hundred percent. I think if you do watch them, but remember the context they're coming in, you'll see so much. So for example, DDLJ is a classic case study of most 19 pre-1990s Bollywood films were pretty anti-West. They're like, the yeah. West sucks. Like everyone from the West is evil. Right. Everyone from the West drinks and gambles and is the worst. And DDLJ was the first one to actually like say, actually, no, what, what if like the Western Indian guy, the British Indian guy is actually the good guy and the Indian Indian yeah. guy is actually the terrible guy. Like, oh my God, we've just right. upended this entire stereotype. And so that's like such a fascinating thing because it totally reflected India falling more in love with Western culture and, and yeah. being even aware of the diaspora and the power of the diaspora and the South, like specifically the UK diaspora. If right. DLJ were made today, it would probably be an Indian American man, not yeah. an Indian American woman. So I think that... Um, I do think that Bollywood is still really important as a conduit. Do I think it's a proxy? I think it's very difficult to say it's a proxy. I think it's more like view several films over time and see how it reflects things. What's interesting about Bollywood's face today is one could argue it's actually moved away from its core. What really made a Bollywood film technically is it's usually in Hindi, it has to be in Hindi. Um, and it's it's usually um, inspired by the story structure of the epics and Parsi theater and Sanskrit theater. That's the usual mm. structure. But what you're seeing more and more in Bollywood is more and more of them are following the Western structure of a novel, which is like yeah. short, less than two hours, one main protagonist, few parallel storylines, everything is wrapped up neatly by the end. And I think a lot of people I know in Bollywood is like, wait, are we losing Bollywood? I think that's what's mm. happening right now more so than yeah. like, is this a correct proxy for South Asian society? Well, and, and, and does that mean that um, people will or that for you, for that matter, are you more nostalgic about that sort of old style and hopeful that there would be a little bit more of a throwback to that as opposed to modern movie making perhaps in in the Bollywood space? Yeah, actually you're seeing so many um, other film industries in India taking up the mantle of what Bollywood was known for. Like if you look at RRR, that is like an epic, it's technically not Bollywood, but it's such an epic Bollywood movie in all of its structure, like parallel storylines, like epic proportions, like sometimes ridiculous potholes yeah yeah ramayan so very much i think that you know it's not that i hold hope it's more that i think bollywood is seeing that its lunch is being eaten 
by other regional film mm -hmm. industries, as it should be if it doesn't keep up with its own culture. So I think that right. there's something there where I'm like, hey, like there's so much diversity in Bollywood. Let's not lose that in the spirit of just trying to be like Hollywood. When you found the juggernaut, I remember you used the phrase that that you're trying to look at things from a from a brown gaze, and and has we touched upon this a little bit earlier, but you know has it also helped you clarify what the non brown gaze might be? Oof, you are always full of great questions, Abe. <laughs> I think that I think like as soon as you said that phrase, I always think about like what is my gut reaction, and I would say like I, I don't I don't think juggernauts goals necessarily to other people, right? We want it to feel like a comforting home, not just for people who are of South Asian descent or have, or South Asian enthusiasts, but anybody who just wants to like, just try to understand what's going on in this community. You know, I, I don't know if I use this analogy on your show, but I always love this analogy, which is how do you know that you're at a great Chinese restaurant? You know, you're at a great Chinese restaurant when you're sitting there and you look around and there are people from the community there and you feel welcome yourself, right? Where people aren't made, making you feel like, dumb or silly for not using how not knowing how to use chopsticks or for not understanding right. every item in the menu you want to make it feel as if hey it's super authentic to who we are it's exploratory but it's also welcoming so i would say you know it's not that i've figured out what the non-brown gaze is but i think in the spirit of the juggernaut we've definitely figured out like hey this is what the brown perspective is and it's multifaceted and it's nuanced mm -hmm. and it's on multiple ends of the spectrum and if you're just curious and want to know and you're okay with being a little bit uncomfortable because this is not going to be easy for you to digest sometimes, come on over. Because yeah. like, I think even when the Rishi Sunak news happened, we had a very like direct news hit, which was Rishi Sunak becomes UK prime minister making history. Right. And a lot of progressives on the page were like, how dare you champion him? How dare you give him a platform? And I'm like, yo, we're not giving this guy a platform. He just became prime minister. Like yeah. if we didn't cover him, people would be like, how are you not covering this huge news? How, like, how is this not news, right? You can't win. So yeah. basically, I think, you know, I always tell people, both the people who get angry and the people who are supportive, I'm like, look, the true answer, as the Ramayan and Mahabharata tells us, is always a shade of gray, which is yeah. we got to talk about things that are happening, even if sometimes it's uncomfortable, even if we don't support this person personally, you can't erase people from history because right. that's what's been happening to us. For centuries, people still to this day don't know that there were South Asians in America that some people say as early as yeah. the 1700s. But guess yeah. what? They were scared to be called out. So many of them assimilated or took on different names or just disappeared into American history. How sad is that? Like, we can't do that. Like, we can't keep doing yeah. that. So, like, I think that that's, that's my push to everybody, which is like, hey, let's not keep on thinking about the non-brown gaze. Let's celebrate the brown gaze, but also acknowledge that the brown gaze needs to be more inclusive and also mm. needs to allow for other opinions and needs to allow for the fact that we're all different and unique and are coming to something from different perspectives. I love that, actually, because what it does in, in many ways is it first off, it widens the tent even more and it makes sure that the, the brown gaze is actually being clarified and it's being constantly reviewed and we're constantly looking at it. And in many ways, uh, okay, whatever the non-brown gaze might be, it almost doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Snigdha Sur. Stay tuned. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. 
I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, I am Congressman Sri Thanedar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing by Abhay Dandekar. Hey, I'm Abhay Dandekar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with the founder and CEO of The Juggernaut, Snigdha Sur. You, you tweeted this. I saw this one because this caught, this caught my eye, and I think it caught the eye of, of others as well, that the, for the tech industry, and particularly living in that, in that space, you know, the headline for 2022 was, we came, we saw, and we did not conquer, um, which, which, is, which is a line that I loved. Um, how has it sort of played out for you in that way with, with the juggernaut? And what do you hope the headline's going to be for 2023? I mean, a very, very strange set of years that we've been going through, but, you know, forecasting now, what do you hope the headline might be for 23? Yeah, to, to take a step back and give even more context on that, and I love that you saw that tweet, is that basically, to rewind even one more year, 2021 was a year of excess. There was rampant funding in the tech industry, rampant hiring. People were overhiring by tens of thousands of people. And some of that overhiring and rampant funding, often sometimes not to the best actors. Um, we can talk about FTX. We can talk right. about crypto companies. We can talk about the hot startups of the year. And some of that um, sentiment carried over into the early Q1 of 2022, which is what I was referring to. Is like we came, we saw. But by the end of 2022, it was quite clear that, A, we're heading into inflationary economy. The Fed's not happy about it. They are increasing rates. Um, valuations for really, really hot startups have fallen down or completely imploded from fast to bolt. Meanwhile, I do think, and this is me being biased as a media tech company, a lot of media tech and content plays that were very frugal with their money, because guess what? It's not easy for them to raise. Axios exited to Cox Enterprises in August 2022. The Athletic exited to the New York the Times, Times in January yeah. 2022. Politico exited, I believe, at the end of 2021 to Axel Springer for over a billion dollars. Um, Hello Sunshine exited around that time to uh, Kendall Media Group. And when I was thinking about the headline for 2022, I felt that that's what it was for many overblown tech companies, which is we came, we saw, we did not conquer. Yeah, my yeah, I know. And I even called inflation. I was like, inflation's happening, guys. I remember I wrote this prediction for McKinsey uh, predictions. I was like, it's all going to be about inflation. But I guess sure. it came its head in 2023. I think the 2023 headline is going to be, I, I think the term I've used for myself is persistence, which is mm -hmm. things are going to get really, really tough. So it's going to be really about doing what you're really good at, being frugal as hell, and continuing to fight. So every single day, any founder survives, any company survives, is another day you can keep fighting. And I think you're going to have to ask for a lot of help. This is a year where we're going to have to ask for so much help and hope that people are charitable, not just charitable, like literally with charity, I mean, charitable with their time and their spirit and understand that, you know, if you are a Google engineer who still has your job and you're earning $300,000 a year and you're like, I'm just cutting my subscriptions because I want to. Like that right. actually has uh, knock on effects. If you cut your donation to the New York Public Library, if you cut your donation to, I, I'm just making some of these public services sure. up, but you know, the sure. New York Public Library was a huge part of my education growing up. And 
you know, even if I, if my cash balance is down, my personal account, I will try as much as I can to donate to the, you know, the Queens Public Library, the New York Public Library this year, because right. I know it's going through budget cuts. So yeah. I don't know if that was a very direct answer again, but I would say that the answer is going to be persistence. And the other buzzword I want people to think about is being helpful and helping and asking mm -hmm. for help because it's going to be a tough year. So if you can be generous, be generous. This is not the year to, you know, just when you're doing okay, gloat about it because it's going to be a tough year. And, and you mentioned the word persistence and being, you know, continuing to be good at what you're really good at. What are you really good at? What do you what are you really good at? And how do you know that you're really good at being really good at that? <laughs> Oof. So there's a there's a this is my McKinsey thing coming into my head, but uh, I'm thinking of a two by two as per usual. But right. the way I think that a lot of young folks ask me about this, you know, because it's such a question when you're in your existential angst of your late teens and early 20s. And you're right. like, Snigda, how do I figure out what I'm passionate about? How do I figure out what I'm good at? And it's actually a few things that I, I ask the questions back is here's what I want people to notice. I want people to notice when it feels like time is going by really quickly. I want people to notice when they feel like they're in flow. I want people to notice when, even though it feels like a weird task or it should be a drudgery task, that they feel energized by it, excited by it, and get it done quickly. And those will, three questions kind of will help you figure out what your strengths are. It's important to have all three because it can't just be you're good at doing it fast if you don't get energy right. from it. Because if you don't get energy from it, you're just good at doing it fast. Yeah, I, I load and, and I load my dishwasher really fast. And uh, I, I would say I'm good at it, but I don't love that. Right. Yeah. I would say I'm really good at line editing, but should I be doing line editing my entire life at a juggernaut? Probably not. Probably so not. I would say that just make sure that whatever it is you think about, it's you're really fast at it. You're really, it feels easy to you and it's giving you energy. I would say as a company with a juggernaut is really good at, I think is what you call that in the beginning. I think we're really good at our curation. I think we're really, really good at asking the tough questions of our community and covering stories that you might have always thought about, but never really did the research for it. And um, sometimes that means there's hard truths. Like that colonization and diabetes article led to people being like, stop blaming colonization for everything. And I'm like, we're actually not. The scientific research shows that a lot of people actually saw changes in their bodies Absolutely. genetically because of yeah. years of famine, especially the Bengal famine. How are we not talking about that? We, we Of course, we can't blame everything on colonization, but some things actually we can. So like, let us right. do that. So yeah. I think that, um, I think that, I think that's what we're really good at is just like finding those questions, digging deep at those questions. And guess what? We have to think our community. So much of our journalism, community journalism, where, you know, Purna Jagannathan of Never Have I Ever will text me and be like, Singa, why don't you have an article on curly hair? And I'll be like, all right, Purna, I'm on it. Or, you know, you know, somebody will, you know, ask us this question about you guys should talk more about diabetes or heart disease. And I'm like, okay, we're on it. So I'm really thankful to the community because community centered journalism means we're reflecting back what the community is saying. What I'm personally good at, I think is, uh, <laughs> I think I'm really good at thinking about stories and probably because I'm just a huge reader. I've been reading so much since I was a little, little kid yeah. that like, I think I have a lot of taste when it comes to, I know that book is good, or I know that article yeah. is good. I can tell from a headline if I want to read something and if it has something good to offer, I can tell, this is, that sounds really creepy, but I can tell when a Facebook account or Instagram account is mostly plagiarizing and getting their ideas from other people. Right. Yeah. You can tell, right? That yeah. like, that spirit is not there. That, yeah. that intensity of research, that intensity of 
you know, inquisitiveness is not there. And so I think that's one of my strengths. I would say I'm also really, really good at probably social media now in terms of like random stuff that I've learned. So if anybody wants to talk Instagram, I'm here for you. (laughs) Well, and I mean, you know, being able to sort of flesh out the facade of things is always a, I think a good skill to have. And and it comes from a lot of intellectual, intellectual curiosity. And in, in that same spirit, you know, you use the, the colonialism example for, you know, health. Um, it, it, it talks a lot about, you know, context and nuance and bringing out those stories and questions that have not necessarily been brought out before. You know, what have you learned, particularly about yourself now, in trying to share stories with untold context? Yeah. I mean, we may have answered this question in the sense that it's tough because if you need to get people over the hump of sometimes reading that article and paying for that subscription because there is a lot of research and data going behind some of these stories, some of these reported articles. And when you're trying to put all of that context together in one place and really highlighting that issue and putting that kind of really tight spotlight on it, it's sometimes tough. So for example, the I'm going to talk about the migrant worker story. A lot of people had already reported on it. The Guardian had reported on it. The New York Times had reported on it. But I think the way we chose to report on it is this wonderful writer who was a human rights professor was like, I want to write an op-ed on this. And she was South Asian and she also had grown up in the Gulf. So now you realize there's a different level of um, kind of perspective being put up. And granted, she said her dad was essentially a white collar worker, not a migrant worker on the field. But she brought a lot of data and research and thought to the piece that I was like, everyone has told a story before. How can we tell it in the juggernaut way? How can we really yeah. shine a light on it? We made sure to put the number of deaths in the deck, in the subhead, because a lot of people had buried that information. They're like thousands of South Asian deaths. Da, 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 da. Maybe it's because they didn't feel confident of the exact number. I was like, I don't care if you feel confident about the exact number. The fact that that number is even out there, we should talk about that number. So in bringing that out, has that made you more confident? Has that has that uh, has the opportunity to to share that context? How's how's this how's the process maybe changed you as a leader? I think that in terms of changing, I'll start with changing me as a person. I think, frankly, I learned so much on the job that I never would have known otherwise. Right. I feel like I'm going through like a South Asian studies PhD, even though I did a South Asian <laughs> studies undergraduate degree. Yeah. I learn every single day from our writers, from our audience, from the tips, from from all of these things that are coming in. It's been genuinely such a great experience. So founders who are ever starting a media tech company, it's tough, but like you will learn so much every single day because it's not like you're selling one pro- product 10 million times. You're selling a new product every single day, if yeah. not more. And um, in terms of how it's changed me as a leader, I think um, one of the best books I read recently was called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. And I actually mm. posted on Instagram about this. Yeah. And she is a world champion poker player. And she says that so much of us in our daily day-to-day, we do view life as black or white. We use the words right yeah. or wrong, right? But again, going back to it, the true answer usually often is on a spectrum. You can yeah. often say, I'm 80% sure about this. And I think that a lot of what I've learned as a leader are from working on the juggernaut is two things. One, lean more into your intuition because mm-hmm. your intuition is actually accumulation of subconscious decisions that your brain might not be explicitly making, sorry, making explicit to you, but is making implicit to you. And second, view everything on a spectrum, which I had already known yeah. from like being raised as a, I guess, a Hindu and knowing the Mahabharata and Ramayana, but especially in journalism, 
too much journalism is going into either left-wing politics or right extreme right-wing politics or extreme left-wing politics when many yeah. people really just want to know what the story is they just want to know where we are and sometimes that's tough to stand your ground for that i get hate mail from both sides but um <laughs> it's fine. It's like, that's what the truth is. That's what Annie Duke would say. Like things are on a spectrum. Yeah. It's not just right or wrong. You know, with that and the instinct part of it being there and, and being a driver and a motivator and an accelerator with the kind of growth of, of paying attention to those grays and thinking about the the future and, and the optimism that you have. And for that matter, the, you know, the idea that this is a year for persistence as well. You shared the story about keeping up with the headline that she was ready to build an empire. Um, are, are you equally poised and ready to build an empire? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I don't think I have the audience of Vivica yet, nor her resources. <laughs> well, but what I do, sure. <laughs> but, okay. but I think what I do share for, with her, one of the things also I learned by interviewing so many people, as you probably learned interviewing so many people from her, is that she had that element of persistence, which was like, hey, like, yes, she may have come from privilege. Yes, she might have the tall stature and the beauty and all that that comes from it. But she always knew growing up that she'd just have to work harder and work a little bit more. And I think when, when you know, I started the juggernaut and as we've grown the juggernaut, I've always have viewed it as an empire, but not in the sense of the colonial sense, right? Which is like, hey, we're going to just use and abuse labor and like not pay for things and just things like that. I've always used it as an empire in the sense that, you know, going back to the juggernaut's meaning, it's going to be an unstoppable force. We as a community are an unstoppable force. This brand is going to be an unstoppable force when it comes to covering us, even if that coverage might not always be the most, you know, beautiful, uh, it might be sure. more complex. And I think in that way, I do believe we're ready to make a change and make a difference and continue to be that unstoppable force. And that I can assure you. And if there's anything that will stop us, it would honestly be like the community not believing in us or investors to stopping believing in us. And that's our goal always. So if you want us to keep succeeding, you as a community, I'm calling on you all, like show these investors that we need this, right? Because I always yeah. say that, like, it's nice to say, oh, I support South Asian brands. Oh, I support South Asian chai. But are you going out? And then if you can, using your dollars to go support those brands, right? Because that's what it takes. It means that, you know, I am very thoughtful about where my money goes when I'm, you know, buying South Asian beauty products or buying sure. a South Asian outfit or going back to the Queens Public Library. I was like, they need my help. So yeah. that's what I would say, which is we're ready to build an unstoppable force, but we need the community to be with us to be that unstoppable force. Well, needing the community and building unstoppable forces and and building empires. I've learned a lot and I can't wait to have another conversation with you down the line. Snigda, thank you so much for joining us. What a treat and we hope we can do it again. Abe, thank you so much. It's just been a joy to see you grow and see you know all of the people you've been speaking to and sharing all of their insights and teasing them out. So Abe, thanks for doing that. Thanks again, Snigda. And you can find more at thejuggernaut.com. And just like Jagannath, hope you're listening and mastering your universe. And like Jagabandhu and Jaganmitra, being friendly and kind to everyone around you. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar.